Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Richard! Richard! Oh, are we on? Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Hey, welcome to Radio Free Canada. News, notes, and opinions from the underground for Monday, December the 20th. So we we got the, the liner in, installed on the weekend. The liner for the ice rink. I've been telling you about this backyard hockey rink that we've been uh, putting together, and I just wanted to bring you up to speed. And uh, the water truck is coming tomorrow. So keep in mind, the hockey rink is 20 feet, sorry, 25 feet by 50 feet, 25 by 50. And we were advised to fill it to a depth of about five inches. You don't need ice that's five inches thick to skate on. You only need about an inch. I think, in fact, I read once we're in the NHL, it's about, what, three quarters of an inch thick, the ice, or even less. But we have to allow for a slight slope in the backyard. <laughs> It's not perfectly level, so we could end up with, you know, four inches in one corner and an inch at the other end. So, get this. We did all the uh, the arithmetic, or I should say the, uh, the people that own the water truck. 4,500 gallons of water. That's 4,500 gallons of water. It's like a swimming pool. Anyway, just in time now that uh, we're into... Sub-zero temperatures. We should have ice this time on Wednesday. Now all I need is a Zamboni. Although I've seen on YouTube, they have terrific videos on how to make your own sort of hand-pulled Zamboni using like a plastic garbage container and a few plumbing supplies. So I don't know if I have the, the wherewithal to do that, but we'll see. Okay. How many of you are actually going to limit your Christmas dinner gatherings to 10. That's the protocol, right? How many of you are disinviting the vaccine free? How many of you are disinviting those who aren't fully vaccinated? And what does that even mean? No mixing doubly vaxxed with the thrice vaxxed. This is the vaccine cast system I warned you about months and months ago, right? Where you would have people that are Fully vaxxed, meaning they've got their doubly vaxxed plus the booster. Now separating themselves or insisting that 
their doubly vaxxed friends not come over because they're not fully vaxxed. And once, once we get to where Israel already is on their fourth vaccine, then people that have had three jabs will be excluded. That's the vaccine cast system. Anyway, I'm, I'm curious to know how many are actually complying. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just, I'm curious to know. I can tell you that in my circle of friends and acquaintances, I don't know anyone, anyone who is going along with any of this. Again, I'm not telling anyone what to do. I'm just telling you what I'm hearing and I'm reporting back. And my sense is people are done. They are done. So here's a, a very poignant monologue on the topic by the very eloquent Neil Oliver from GBN and his take on COVID Christmas. Christmas is all about tradition. Part of what makes it a reassuring time, a comforting and restorative time, is how so much is familiar every year. A lot of it is about the little things, the same decorations in the same place on the tree, on the mantelpiece, in the garden, the same family rituals performed at the same time year after year, the same favourite foods, the same old songs playing in the shops. So here it is, Merry Christmas and all that. Now it looks as though we've been gifted a new Christmas tradition, one we can all enjoy forevermore. And it's a great big dollop of fear and misery from the Grinches of our government and their soul-sucking scientists. If you listen carefully, you can hear the voices of the not-too-distant future. Can we start the circuit breaker lockdown tonight, Daddy? No, Tiny Tim. You know we can't just start our own circuit breaker. That wouldn't be right. Or Christmassy, now would it? We all have to lock down at exactly the same time. Otherwise, the economy might recover. And we can't have that. The dear leaders went to a lot of trouble to crash the economy and do away with the pound. Imagine if we had to give up our universal basic income and go back to working for a living. But when then, Daddy? I want to lock the front door and hide the key until spring, like we always do. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the country, not a creature was stirring because of Covid. Well, you'll just have to wait until that twinkly little elf, Professor Witty, sends his annual message down the chimney, wishing us all a happy new booster and warning us to stay away from Granny in case we kill her. But Granny died years ago, Daddy, from the pancreatic cancer no one knew she had until it was much too late to do anything about it. You remember, Daddy, the same year Grandad died alone in the care home of a broken heart because no one was allowed to visit him. Now, now, Tiny Tim, that's not the point. It's not about making sense. It's about making it up as you go along, like jolly old Professor Ferguson and his merry modelling. You know better than to talk about undiagnosed cancer or indeed any other erstwhile dangerous ailments like heart attack and stroke. Now what do we sing? Silence now, silence now. All is closed, all is COVID. God bless you, tiny Tim. Now let's sit by the fire with the rest of the family and do our lateral flow tests. God help us, everyone, said tiny Tim, although the words were quite muffled from behind his three masks. Merry COVID Christmas. Neil Oliver. What a brilliant mind. What a brilliant speaker. Um, Have a listen to this L.A. school board member 
a trustee, I guess, from Los Angeles. She's irate because her school board's plan to try and mandate vaccines for children is falling apart. Tens of thousands of parents said no to having their children vaccinated. And so now the school board has had to push the mandate into the next semester because 30,000 students were unvaccinated. And 30,000 fewer students means schools would lose teachers. And so now the school trustee is upset because that's going to cause displacement and inconvenience for those that vaccinated and would be allowed uh, to participate in in in-person learning. They won't have the teachers. And so she's angry because the vaccinated, they did as they were told. But the unvaccinated are causing an inconvenience. So they've pushed the mandate into next semester. Sounds like a delaying tactic. It may fall apart. Not sure. But listen how she goes off on the parents during this meeting. Like all petty tyrants, she tries to bully and she rants and she raves and has a a temper tantrum. And then she makes the classic logical fallacy of false equivalence. Have a listen. This is very personal to me. I grew up with polio. I saw classmates of mine die. I saw what would have happened if we had the current environment, we'd still have polio today. People would still be getting polio today. This is very personal for me. And I want to tell those of you who come and say, you think you've pushed us back. No, you didn't. The mandate remains. The difference between doing it second semester and doing it in the fall semester is is that those that are unvaccinated will not be leaving classrooms and taking teachers with them because they will have never been allowed to enroll in in in-person learning. Do I want anybody to be out of in-person learning? No. But all of you who are so worried about the mental health of your students who might not be able to be in in-person learning, get them vaccinated. It's really very simple. And please, don't start in with me about how many years before you'll know what the consequences are. We know nothing of consequences with polio vaccines. Nothing. Zero. But it saved thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. And it kept thousands, hundreds of thousands more from losing uses of arms and legs. Wow. Take a breath, crazy lady. She saw her classmates die from polio, because it, so it's personal. How many students in L.A. have died from COVID? How many young children, otherwise healthy young children? Polio affected mainly the young. Polio was a threat to young people. COVID is most clearly not. And all of the data shows this. According to a researcher at Johns Hopkins Medical Center, there's been not a single pediatric death in the United States in otherwise healthy children from COVID. Now, I'm not sure if that's entirely true. I suspect there may have been some pediatric deaths from COVID but far fewer than die from the flu. The overwhelming evidence demonstrates COVID is not a serious threat to otherwise healthy children. And there is mounting evidence that the vaccine could cause myocarditis. In rare instances, if you consider one in 5,000 or one in less than 4,000 now, 
less than 4,000 doses, we have incidents of myocarditis from either Moderna or Pfizer. So the sensible thing to do would be to conduct some risk management. Risk management. You weigh the benefit, you weigh the risk, and you make a decision based on that. That's a parent's job. She says, we took the polio vaccine and we didn't know anything about long-term effects and we liked it that way. Brilliant logic. We did it anyway. That's your logic? Roll the dice. Hope for the best. We did it. You should too. That's your argument. Polio? Comparing polio to COVID? This is, this is a victim of mass psychosis we're listening to here, folks. All right. Believe it or not, there are other things to discuss besides COVID and this uh, Omicron thing. And I'm really trying to move on. It's endemic. Let's accept it, that it's here to stay. And let's just get on with our normal lives. The government is not our parent. It's not their job to keep us safe and healthy. That's our individual responsibility. So there are other things. Uh, do you belong to a political party? Do you donate to that party? Good. That's, that's a healthy thing. But on top of donations, Ontario political parties are also receiving a subsidy courtesy of the taxpayer. They get, I guess, so many dollars per vote. It's a welfare system for politicians. And the Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation says it's time for that welfare system to end. He joins me next as our first order of business. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for uh, Monday, December the 20th. Keep your stick on the ice. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on Ontario Premier Doug Ford and other party leaders to end the province's political welfare system. All four of Ontario's political parties are on track to take a record $14 million from the taxpayer cookie jar by the end of 2021. Jay Goldberg is Ontario Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins me now. Jay, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. So how does this this uh, taxpayer funded subsidy to the parties work exactly? Well, uh, former Premier Kathleen Wynne created this system in 2014. And essentially, uh, political parties are given a certain amount of money from taxpayers, from general revenue in the government, Every once every three months for the amount of votes they received in the last election. Uh, so essentially what that means is that for $14 million this year, uh, $14 million is going from taxpayers' wallets into the wallets of the four major political parties, the Progressive Conservatives, the Liberals, the NDP, and Greens. And they can spend this money on whatever they want. This is not for election Ontario. It's not for getting ready for the next election. This is for attack ads. This is for junk mail. Uh, so this is for completely partisan purposes. And that's our money going directly to those parties. And does the money go to the um, to the party or does it go to the riding associations? How is it divvied up within the party itself? So it just goes to the party uh, and the party gets to decide what they want to do with the money. It's essentially strings free. Um, the party can do absolutely whatever they want with it, whether that's, uh, you know, pay for political attack ads in the next election that will make you want to unsubscribe from cable. Uh, we all hate that when the election comes around and uh, 
unfortunately, many of us here in Ontario will be watching TV and seeing some attack ads and need to remember in the back of our heads that we're paying for them. Well, I thought that's the whole part of, of uh, having, uh, you know, party members donate to the party. Why, why are they, it's kind of like double dipping. If I donate to a political party uh, and then they turn around and then they, they, um, they, they subsidize the party with, with taxpayer money, that's like double dipping. It's absolutely double dipping. And actually donations to political parties are given better tax credits than anything else. If you were to donate money to the Liberal Party of Ontario, for example, the tax credit that you would get is six times more generous than the tax credit you would get if you gave the same amount of money to the Red Cross. So that's how much uh, the system is already skewed. The parties get a six times advantage. Uh, so quite frankly, we think that's more than enough advantage for these political parties. And we've also seen at the federal level, the Harper government repealed the exact same program at the federal level. Uh, the other parties were nervous, uh, but the program was repealed. All of the parties have figured out how to raise enough money to pay for their election campaigns and their operating expenses. There are still limits. Corporations and unions can't donate to the federal parties. And so if it's worked at the federal level, and it has, it can certainly work here in Ontario. Well, uh, Doug Ford promised to scrap this. So this is yet another broken promise, I guess. That's exactly right. He, you know, very clearly said in the last election, I do not believe that taxpayers should have to give money to political parties they don't want to vote for. And that's absolutely true. He was right then. And I think this is just one more in a long list of things where Doug Ford campaigned in 2018 as the outsider pro-taxpayer candidate. And he's really caved to the, you know, the Queen Park, Queen's Park swamp, if you will, uh, this uh, notion down at Queen's Park in downtown Toronto that somehow parties are entitled to things uh, that, you know, he committed to Ontario voters that they were not uh, going to do. Uh, and I understand also now that it's the rules have changed yet again, because now independent MPPs uh, can also get the subsidy, correct? Yeah, so the rules are changing on that front. They they changed the rules uh, in February. Uh, you know, if every party is getting a certain amount of money based on how many votes they got in the last election, it's a little bit difficult to translate that to independent candidates because they only got votes within one uh, riding. But this program, uh, you know, directly giving money to political parties, uh, it's kind of a way of keeping the entrenched political parties happy because uh, up until now, only the four major political parties were getting taxpayer money and they've been getting millions and millions of dollars. So this is actually a way of somewhat evening the playing field a little bit. But again, this is not the way we should be evening up the playing field. The way we should be evening up is for no party to be getting this money, not to try to figure out how to give it to independents as well. Give us a call to action, Jay. What should we do about this? Well, we've got a petition uh, at taxpayer.com to scrap this thing. You can certainly go there and we will be raising this with Premier Ford as time goes on. And I would urge any listeners, uh, email Doug Ford at premier at ontario.ca. Let him know that you want him to keep his promise to scrap this program. We want the same Doug Ford uh, that was out in 2018 calling for this to be scrapped. And, and we'd like to see that Ford come back.
Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, thanks so much. All, all the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. A week ago, Rebel News reporter David Menzies was attacked by Justin Trudeau's security detail and left battered and bloodied for the crime of standing on a public sidewalk waiting to ask the prime minister a question. Naturally, the legacy news media quickly leapt to the defense of their colleague in the fourth estate and demanded an inquiry into the matter. Well, actually, no. The pathetic and complicit legacy news media snickered, looked the other way and said nothing. Actually, that's not entirely accurate. One journalist on social media suggested Menzies probably deserved it. This should be a huge story, and I'm uh, not going to stop talking about it. Rebel News founder Ezra Levant is next. Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serres Show. We, we can't let this go. We have to keep talking about it. David Menzies beaten, bloodied by the crime minister's goons. Standing on a public sidewalk, waiting to ask a question, and he's set upon by these thugs, has his head slammed into a wall, again, left bloodied and battered. And the legacy news media, they snicker, they say nothing, or they uh, they make excuses. There was uh, one Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. One journalist online on social media who suggested that, oh, Menzies probably had it coming. This is grotesque. Absolutely grotesque. Uh, Ezra Levant is David Menzies' boss and the founder of Rebel News, host of the Ezra Levant Show weekdays at 8 p.m. Ezra, welcome. How are you? Thanks very much. I'm I'm great. And thanks for having me on to talk about this. David Menzies isn't everyone's cup of tea, but that's fine. I believe we should have a diversity of opinions in the media. But no one, whether you like David or dislike David, should should take glee or should even turn a blind eye to the fact that he was pummeled by the prime minister's bodyguards. And I, you can see the videotape for yourself. We, we published the raw footage before and after. So you can see we're not hiding anything or editing anything out. He was simply standing on the sidewalk. He had actually been there for about an hour waiting for Trudeau's motorcade to arrive. He was standing next to the cops. He was chatting with the cops for the better part of an hour. He was there with a cameraman. He was clearly a journalist. He had his microphone out, camera on him. Nothing wrong for an hour, not a single word. 
I mean, a cop says, don't stand on the road. And Menzies says, I won't. And you can see the whole thing in the tape. And then the motorcade pulls up. And then suddenly, with no warning, explanation, without saying move, without saying you're under arrest or anything, a three of Trudeau's bodyguards pound the tar out of him, smash his face into the wall, bloody his hands, make his watch and his phone fall, kick him. He's stunned. He talks afterwards. He could, I think it's both psychologically stunned and his head was hit against the wall. He's not quite himself. And then they let him go. Never charged him, never arrested him, never, never refused to say their names when he asked them their names. By the way, that's something that RCMP have to do. And it was like a mugging. And if David did something wrong, I would say, whoa, that's heavy handed. But let's see, was he resisting arrest? Well, no, he wasn't resisting arrest because he wasn't arrested. And this isn't a he said, she said. We have the video. Both David's own phone recorded some of it. And like I say, we had a cameraman there the whole time who was rolling. This is so insane. And for people who think, oh, there's got to be a catch. Oh, he must have provoked them. No, go watch the footage for yourself. We put the raw footage up as well as two edited versions at standwithdavid.com, look at the video yourself. And if you don't like David, fine. Swap in a reporter of your choice. How would you feel, say, if Stephen Harper had his bodyguards rough up some liberal reporter? It's not how we do things in Canada. Well, if, if that were the case, if it had been a CBC reporter or a global news reporter and it had been Stephen Harper or anyone, anyone else, probably, uh, this would be dominating the news cycle across this country. The prime minister wouldn't be able to go anywhere without being asked this question over and over and over and over again. There would be demands for an inquiry. There would be a demand for the names of those RCMP officers that are on the security detail. There would be demands for resignations. Potentially, I mean, this could, I don't know if if suggesting that it could bring a government down um, is going too far. Maybe in another maybe in another country and maybe a more enlightened democracy like Great Britain, it could. Well, at the very least, explain yourself. I remember when, you know, and this is uh, showing how old I am. But in the 90s, there was a international convention called the APEC convention in Vancouver. And there was a dictator named Suharto who was attending and he didn't like protests. And Jean Chrétien was the prime minister at the time. And there were all these protesters because Vancouver is a, a bit of a hippie place. And someone on the prime minister's staff directed the RCMP to pepper spray them. And it was called Peppergate or Spraygate. And Chrétien was personally asked about it. And he said, pepper for me is on the plate. Like he made a bunch of jokes about right, it. Right, right. The media, the media kept on and there was an inquiry. They called it Spray Peck. Spray peck, they called it. And and in, in the end, the media made a big deal out of it. I mean, no one was jailed, but it showed the impropriety of politicians having police punish protesters or journalists. So that's what happened once before. Okay, well, and the difference here, now is we've got we've got our own Suarto in in office. I've got to take a quick time out. Ezra, we'll uh, we'll come back and discuss uh, the beating and bloodying of a journalist in this country by the prime minister's security detail back with more in a moment. Don't go away. You're listening to the Richard Serrett show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. 
Hey, everyone knows if you want to get stronger, you should exercise. And if you want to support your immune system response this season, take Super Strength Oreganol products from North American Herb and Spice. There's no substitute for Super Strength Oreganol, the original truly wild organic oregano oil that's produced by old-fashioned steam distillation. Whether you prefer it as an oil or a vegan gel cap, it has the ingredients your body needs to help support a healthy immune response. Super Strength Oregano products from North American Herb and Spice are available at health food stores across the GTA, or you can order online at oregano.com. Visit the website, sign up for the North American Herb and Spice newsletter, and then you'll receive 5% off your online orders. The website again, oregano.com. Let me spell it for you. O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. 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 Super Strength Oregano Products from North American Herb and Spice at oregano.com. Ezra Levant from Rebel News stays with us as we discuss the beating of journalist David Menzies by Prime Minister Trudeau's security detail. This happened, I guess, about it. Was it a week ago now, the 13th? Yeah, I, I forget the exact day. It was last week. Yeah. And I... It was just at a Christmas party. And that's what David was going to ask about, because Trudeau and his government have told people, well, put your Christmas plans on hold. You can't do things. Triple mask. Da, da, da. And but he's going to party without a mask at a fundraiser with liberal cronies. So David has a very simple question. How come you're partying while you're telling us not to? So it's not like it, it was just a normal thing to do. It's very normal for reporters to sort of camp out outside an event. And as the leader comes in, just to sort of holler a question, frankly, I don't think David was expecting the PM to respond. But um, there was no threat whatsoever. The cops had their eyes on Menzies for a full hour in advance. He was on the sidewalk. And like I say, if he did something wrong, charge him, arrest him. They didn't. They mugged him. And and for the skeptics, go watch the video yourself. It's DanWithDavid.com. The the other journalists that were there, uh, did any of them, uh, I don't know, call out and say, hey, leave him alone. Did any of them come to his aid? Did did um, did they did they offer maybe footage, you know, offering a different angle of the incident to Rebel News? Not at all. And this isn't the first time that happened. Five years ago, our reporter Sheila Gunn-Reed was assaulted, believe it or not, at a women's march by an NDP male feminist. And there was a CP reporter who was shooting pictures like crazy of the whole thing. He refused to publish them, let alone share them. He literally sided with the attacker. And obviously not everyone in the mainstream media is that way. But my God, the silence here is deafening. You know what, though? We're suing. I don't know if I told you this. We're taking the RCMP to court. We've named three of the officers, John Doe, one, two, and three. They wouldn't tell us their real names, so we'll find out later. We're suing the RCMP, John Doe, one, two, and three. Those are the three cops, the three bodyguards, and we're suing the attorney general. And in our lawsuit, it's only 10 pages in plain English. You could see it for yourself at standwithdavid.com. We point out that the prime minister for five years has demonized rebel news. And I'm not saying that should be against the law to demonize us. But when you demonize rebel news and ban them and say they're less than uh, everyone else and they should be excluded and you have a drumbeat against them for five years. And then your closest bodyguards beat the tar out of a rebel news reporter one day. I think it is reasonably foreseeable that that's on you, that you're the big boss and all the staff know you hate rebel news 
and they spy a rebel news reporter at the side of the road. And in that moment, they say the boss will like this. We know that. Get them. And so I look forward to these cops under oath explaining what it was or who it was that said, get the reporter. Fifty nine year old man, two artificial hips. Why was he a risk? Of course not. Frankly, they let the young reporter. We had a young videographer, young cameraman stand right next to him. They didn't lay a finger on the young guy. Why did they target David? This is ratcheting up because we know we saw what happened to Drea Humphrey um, in British Columbia at an event. Again, I don't know if it was the same uh, detail uh, of thugs and goons basically picked her up and, and kind of tossed her aside like a rag doll, manhandled her. Um, th- th- that case is ongoing, too, is it not? You know what? I don't think we're suing in that case, but that was we, we wrote to the RCMP commissioner and she wrote back and justified it. And I feel like the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, who was handpicked by Trudeau, I feel like her main job is to defend Trudeau. Uh, Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. She certainly defended Trudeau and refused to investigate the SNC-Lavalin corruption, which was shocking. I mean, the interference there caused the cabinet minister to resign. I'm talking about Jody Wilson-Raybould, of course. And so the RCMP seems more interested in protecting Trudeau than protecting citizens. And she's justifying it. Well, you know what? We're done writing friendly letters. David Menzies is suing, and we're obviously funding him through crowdfunding. Um, The the RCMP, we're not going to let this go. It's the worst thing that's happened to us in seven years. It's the worst attack on us. And the thing is, it wasn't by Antifa. It wasn't by some street thug. Bodyguards are of no use. You can't hire bodyguards to protect you against against the prime minister's RCMP detail. There's nothing you can do other than go to court. So we will. And uh, how is David these days? Because I know he had to seek some medical attention after the incident. Yeah, I mean, I, I know he's talked to doctors at least twice. I, I haven't gotten into the, the, the details of it with him, but. I mean, he's a tough guy, but I don't know if you saw, he, like his hands were bloody. I did. His yes. head was smacked and he wasn't talking right afterwards. Like he, he was obviously his head. You slam a guy's head against a wall. That's going to jolt the brain. I don't know if he's got a concussion, but it was terrible. Well, I had David on the show um, last week and uh, I believe it was after the incident. He didn't say anything. Um, we were talking about this subway story that he's been working on and I could tell he was not feeling well. But he came on anyway. Yeah. And uh, now I know why uh, it, it just it makes 
makes my heart sick. Actually, I've known David yeah. for 18 years. He's uh, yeah, he could be perceived as a little churlish or borderline rude, even perhaps to some. But uh, uh, I have an affinity for David and I'm just absolutely sickened, not only by the incident, but the silence of the the uh, the complicit cheerleaders in the legacy news media. Uh, I wish you all the uh, best of luck with this lawsuit. They, there must be an accounting here. And uh, I, I truly hope you're successful. Ezra, thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. When we come back, Dr. Patrick Phillips, our small town family and ER physician, will talk about uh, the World Health Organization, says the Omicron wave of the COVID-19 pandemic is being driven by, wait for it, young, healthy, vaccinated individuals. We'll have that story next. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Now, it'll be interesting to see whether the World Health Organization would be, I don't know, blocked by Twitter, censored by Twitter, because... This is ordinarily the kind of information that Twitter or Facebook would uh, flag with their fact checkers as uh, fake news, misinformation, disinformation. But the World Health Organization is saying this. Omicron COVID-19 variant is being spread by healthy vaccinated young people. Although after reading the article, I think the headline might be a little misleading. However, it would appear that most of the cases, the vast majority of the cases with the Omicron variant are in the young, healthy and vaccinated. That doesn't necessarily lead to the conclusion that they are the ones spreading it. Let me just give you the key points here. Most of the initial Omicron cases were found in healthy and vaccinated young people, the World Health Organization said. Around 70 percent and 72% of Omicron cases in Denmark and the U.S., respectively, were from people below 40. Older and more vulnerable people are still likely to be infected in the coming weeks as the variants spread speeds up. The Omicron wave of COVID-19 pandemic being driven by young people, again, according to the World Health Organization. And they're citing data from multiple countries. The first cases of the new coronavirus variant, which was first reported in South Africa in late November and has since been detected in more than 60 countries, were found in relatively young, relatively healthy, and in the context of Europe, in relatively highly vaccinated groups. In relatively highly vaccinated groups, Dr. Catherine Smallwood, a World Health Organization senior emergency officer, was quoted as saying, uh, or telling the uh, the Telegraph, that's the British newspaper. Around 70% of the 3,437 Omicron cases in Denmark, incidentally, Denmark is a, is a world leader in genetic sequencing. So 70% of the 3,437 Omicron cases were people who were younger than 40, according to a breakdown published by the States or the Statens Serum Institute Monday. An analysis from the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control showed similar numbers with around 72% of early Omicron cases being attributed to people under the age of 40. Uh, incidentally, we were hoping to speak with uh, our small town family physician, 
Dr. Patrick Phillips uh, up in Englehart, Ontario, but he has um, has been able to connect with us. So I'm just going to continue to crib from this uh, this article. Again, this is World Health Organization data. The United States, meanwhile, claimed that the majority of the 43 Omicron cases it's detected so far were in the same age bracket as well. Most infections documented at this early stage are among younger or age groups. Professor Emmanuel Andre, the head of the National Reference Lab for COVID-19 in Belgium, said work, travel, sports competitions and schools recited by the professor as possible explanations for the trend. Data also pointed to vaccinated people comprising most of the Omicron cases in some countries with around 75% of Denmark's cases being fully vaccinated people, suggesting that even those who have been jabbed twice can still get the virus. Well, uh, incidentally, this this uh, story came out on December the 14th. So, you know, the number of uh, Omicron cases, of course, continuing to rise. Uh, but again, all indications here we are. What, two and a half, three weeks since Omicron discovered in South Africa, although it, it didn't necessarily originate there. Uh, all indications are it's mild. It's very mild. Now, people will say, ah, OK, so 75 percent of young vaccinated people in Denmark are coming down with COVID or at least testing positive cases are not infections. Do we have to continue to say that? Yes, apparently we do. Um, well, people will say, yes, but look at the vaccination rate. You have to consider the vaccination rate. So if 90% of people are vaccinated, as 75% of the cases are in the vaccinated, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a pandemic of the vaccinated. But the, but the point is, again, this just further underpins the point that the vaccines are not causing or, or are not effective. I mean, how long are they going to continue to call these breakthrough cases when 75% of the cases are in the vaccinated? This is no longer a breakthrough case. This is just a, a leaky vaccine. All right. It doesn't look like we'll get uh, Dr. Patrick Phillips in on this, and that's okay. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to draw your attention to this article. I just I'll point this out as well. While there is a real increase in the number of breakthrough cases, there they go again, breakthrough cases or fully vaccinated people who get infected compared to previous waves, it's still too early to confirm whether the variant triggered a milder disease, Smallwood said. Well, how much time do they need? Again, we're, I believe, three weeks into the uh, discovery of the Omicron variant. It's really important we don't get ahead of ourselves in terms of judging the severity of Omicron. Because in terms of the cases we've picked up, they're in healthier, more mobile, younger, highly vaccinated population. And we're not even that far into the disease trajectory, the doctor noted. South Africa has also urged caution on jumping to conclusions amid the Omicron variant's emergence. Well, the discoverer, I guess, with a patient zero in South Africa, Dr. Angela Coetzee, who has, has gone to great lengths, great pains to reiterate it's mild. Don't panic. The reaction is, is again, overblown. 
She's written articles about this and columns saying, please, please stop with this. She didn't use these words, but I will. Mass psychosis. All right, we, uh, we are getting ready to roll into the top of the hour. Plenty of show still to come, hour two. Uh, Jim Carajalios will be here. Would be interesting to get his take on uh, Randy Hillier's new party, Ontario First, the provincial wing, I guess, of the uh, People's Party of Canada, although it's not officially a party yet. Still gathering signatures. Derek Sloan, former conservative leadership hopeful, has announced he's now leading the fledgling Ontario party. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Although I don't think they really register in the polling, maybe an asterisk at this point, but uh, will they affect the fortunes of New Blue? We'll find out. And also this fabulous uh, continuing series in the National Post uh, called The Capitalist Manifesto. We'll speak with Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And she'll talk about why free speech must be protected at all costs. All right, hour to await. Stick, stick with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. The Richard Serrett Show continues on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. That's it. There's an hour two. You get bonus. Aren't you lucky? So the uh, the new Blue Party of Ontario is a brand new uh, right of center political party, hoping to challenge the not so conservative governing PC party, which with, with each passing day becomes increasingly indistinguishable from the Kathleen Wynne liberals who preceded Premier Doug Ford. Uh, now, of course, former PC MPP Randy Hillier has announced he's trying to form a, uh, a provincial wing of the People's Party, Ontario first. He wants to lead that party, uh, although it's not an official party yet, into the next provincial election, which will happen in June 2022. And former federal conservative leadership hopeful Derek Sloan, who was tossed out of the federal conservative party, has announced he's taking over le- leadership of the Ontario party, not to be confused with Randy's Ontario first party. So what do these two new parties mean for the fortune of New Blue? Will they split the vote and prevent New Blue from winning seats? Is that the whole intention? Of course, Jim Carajalios, leader of New Blue, has accused Randy Hillier of being controlled opposition and having a secret deal with Doug Ford and the PCs. And uh, Jim Carajalios joins us now. Hey, Jim, how are you? 
I'm doing great, Richard. It's good to be on the show. So first, let's um, let's contrast and compare uh, New Blue with the, uh, the the still unofficial uh, Ontario First entity. It's not an official party yet because it hasn't been uh, recognized by the Ontario elections. Uh, first, Randy still has to gather how many signatures? Two thousand or one thousand? So there's no comparison. Let's just cut to the chase because you're comparing <laughs> nothing, and there's no comparison, Richard. Like we we uh, announced the new blue party in October of 2020, a couple months after Belinda got removed from caucus. Belinda Carhalios, the MPP for the riding at Cambridge, the only current or former PC MPP to vote against Doug Ford's lockdown law. She got removed from caucus, and the two of us and 17 others got kicked out of the PC party. We got two. two uh, more than double the required signatures we needed in two weeks to register. Elections Ontario takes three months to review the signatures. So the whole process takes four to five months. We got approved in January. And even while I fought off cancer and now I'm cancer free and had three reconstructive leg surgeries, three surgeries, one of them being reconstructive leg surgeries, we spent the last year building the party and Belinda's been fighting the Ford government at Queens Park the only MPP to consistently do it for the last year, fighting them on lockdown and other legislation. So we've built a party that is a founding board of directors, a constitution with a mission statement and principles, riding associations registered in almost every single riding. I think we're like 10 short. You can go check it out online. We've been receiving candidate applications since last week. They've been going amazingly. We're going to find candidates in every single riding. Uh, we've been raising money for a year. We have thousands of members and donors they come from every riding across the province. And you're asking me to compare with Randy Hillier, who's... I say compare and contrast. <laughs> yeah, so let's contrast. Randy Hillier announced six weeks ago he's doing this, uh, um, uh, you know, allegedly doing this party. He's been at it six weeks. He doesn't have the signatures to register. We got more than double what we needed in two weeks. So the support's not there. And it's very clear from publicly what I've said, and you, don't, you just have to look at it. It's not a secret. He's been cutting deals with the Ford PCs while pretending to oppose them. They changed the Election Act to benefit him and allow him to create an independent riding association and get a taxpayer subsidy. Now, Derek Sloan popped up, and it's such a shame, right? Because why can't they just be straight with what they're doing? Derek Sloan says he's leading a party in the next election. Here's what he told iPolitics on Friday. Sloan told iPolitics, this is a quote, Richard, Sloan told iPolitics, it's too soon to say if he'll run as an Ontario party candidate or just help with the campaign, adding he joined the Ontario party because he was approached to help with it and because it's already registered. So he's the leader of a party who's not going to run in the next provincial election. And you're asking me to compare and contrast. Those are not real parties, Richard. They're jokes. They're just paper parties. These guys are trying to distract. The establishment's coming really hard at New Blue because Belinda's in the lead in Cambridge. And now we've got candidates applying. And Wait a second. You've seen polling. And, and, and the polling indicates that Belinda is in the lead in her riding of Cambridge. We don't have millions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies that the Ontario PC Party gets and that Randy Hillier gets in his $66,000 a year in his independent riding association. We raise all our money from grassroots members. Uh, but the evidence on the ground and uh, what the PC party is telling reporters is that Belinda's in the lead in Cambridge. And look, it's five months away. The polls don't really mean anything, but she's got a really strong shot in Cambridge is what I'm getting. The best shot from all of the former PC MPPs. And I, as the leader of the new blue party, I'm going to run. I'm not going to tell people to donate to my party um, and, and not run. And we're going to run candidates in every riding. So these other two parties 
they're they're being controlled by guys in the back that want to see the new blue not do well, but they're really not a threat. Like the, we haven't seen any um, negative impact on the new blue party in terms of memberships, in terms of anything. The riot, the candidate applications keep coming in, and things are going great. We're building really strongly. Have you decided on a riding you, where you're going to run? I'll be announcing shortly. Uh, we got to have a board meeting to, um, you know, that's the thing when you run a party with a board and riding associations, it's a process, right? It's not, it's not just one guy saying, Hey, I've taken over a party. I'm desperate for your financial support. We've got people involved, but 100% I'm running in the next election. And for the last year, I've been building the new blue party with our team fighting off cancer. I'm cancer free. I'm back to good health and hundred percent leader has to run when they're leading a party into an election. What a joke. Like you're a leader of a party, like Derek Sloan is saying, but he's not going to run in the next election. He's asking people to donate to like, I guess, look, Richard, he's a young guy. He's in his thirties. They fooled him. Like P, uh, CPC operatives fooled him to go run in Alberta. He went all the way over there. He was telling everyone he's going to create a federal party, the greatest grassroots effort we're ever going to see in Canadian history. He was saying he got over there, got 2000 votes, Richard. It was so sad. 2000 votes, the poor guy. And I texted him on election day saying, Derek, like, I just felt so bad for the guy, Richard. I texted him. I said, are you all right? Let me know when you come back to Ontario, we can meet. And we had three or four calls. I said, let's have a meeting. Let's have a meeting. We're registering new blue riding associations in your riding of Hastings. Maybe your wife wants to get involved. Maybe she wants to run again because the poor guy stuck his wife in Hastings to run uh, an election campaign while he flew off to Alberta. He never took the meeting, Richard. He never you would, you would have invited him to run for new blue. I just said, let's have a meeting. I felt yeah. bad for the guy. Let's have a meeting. Do you guys want to recommend people that you get along with in Hastings to set up the new blue riding association? I didn't want to step on any toes. I wanted to extend an olive branch see what he was thinking four weeks ago. He was telling me and emailing out to his list. We're setting up the greatest grassroots effort in Canadian history with the true North party. He's been at this federal party for eight months and he's a lawyer, Richard, and he can't get it registered with elections Canada. So he ditched the idea after telling me on the phone, that's what he was doing and telling all of his supporters. And then he announces, calls me last Sunday, says, I'm going to be announcing this in a couple of days. And he announces he's in a party. He's not sure if he's going to run. There was no discussion of let's work together. You know, uh, Jim, I want to be the leader of the new blue. Jim, we got to work together. It's such a shame what's happening. Well, you, How can the guy you, you read these media accounts and, and you read the people on social media and there is some frustration out there. And I don't know what the numbers are, but they're saying, come on, why can't every, you know, why do we have three? They're calling them three right of center parties. And I, I know that you would you would argue with that because I don't think you know, necessarily that Randy politically lines up with sort of right of center views. And we can get into that a little bit later. But but uh, what do you say to the people on social media and in the media that are saying, why can't the three of you just get together? Why? Why is this? Why do conservatives, quote unquote, always bicker amongst themselves and and and, uh, you know, split the vote? Why can't you get together? What do you say? Uh, why can't conservatives get along is what you're saying. I guess. Or, or how do you respond to the people on social media who are, who are saying, you know, why does this always happen? Why do we have why do we have three right of center parties now when when, you know, one is is what it's going to take to beat Doug Ford? And we don't have three right of center parties, but I understand their frustration. Like the other two guys are pretending they have political parties and they don't. And they're deceiving their supporters. And I understand, like, if you know who Randy is and, you know, Belinda and me and, you know, what we've been doing and, you know, who Derek is. 
you think, you know, it's great if they all got together, but at the end of the day, they don't have the same goals and interests as us. That's, that's what it comes down to. They're being, they're being influenced by people in the back and they're being controlled by people in the back who have an interest in ensuring that we, the new blue party of Ontario does not replace the Ontario PC party. And, you know, Belinda and I have reached out to, um, uh, like I said, I reached out to Derek Sony. She reached out to all the PC MPPs who got kicked out of Doug Ford's caucus and ask for meetings. And that's all we can do is offer them an opportunity to work together. And they all reject it. And it, because it comes down to this, even though they may not like Doug Ford and they don't like Doug Ford, they're still with the Ontario PC party. And they're looking forward to a day when we can have another leadership race and, and, you know, thousands of people can be duped into spending more money on donations in a leadership race that they can Jimmy and they can, you know, orchestrate to get another Sorry, sap of a leader like Doug Ford. And but there's people in the back controlling these other guys and influencing these other guys that have an interest in ensuring the new blue party of Ontario does not replace the Ontario PC party. And that's what happens when you have institutional parties that have been hijacked by the boys in the back. And, you know, you don't have to look very far, Richard. It makes if you follow these guys uh, clearly, you'll see they don't they don't criticize the Ontario PC party for a rig convention, rig nominations. They don't criticize comprehensively on the policy. They'll pick on Doug Ford because they might not like Doug Ford, but they're still with the Ontario PC party. And I know it's frustrating for people, but all we can do is focus on growing the new blue party and bringing new blood into the political process. New blood is what's is what it's going to take. We'll take a quick time out. Jim Carahalios, leader of New Blue, stays with us. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Jim Carahalios stays with us, leader of the New Blue Party of Ontario. And uh, now we have Ontario first. This is, uh, it's not an official party yet. Randy Hillier is uh, still trying to scramble and get the needed number of signatures together so that it can be uh, vetted and then approved by Elections Ontario. This takes time. We have uh, Derek Sloan, former Conservative leadership, hopefully was kicked out of the Conservative Party, and now assuming the reins of something called the Ontario Party, which I wasn't aware of that it existed. However, he he says he's not necessarily committed to even running. He just wants to help out. Um, So, Jim, you've spent much of your political career, you know, uh, fighting against uh, inside corruption within the, the Conservative Party, the rigging of uh, internal elections and so forth. How are candidates in New Blue um, going to be selected? What's the process? From a grassroots process, no one's done more than, uh, I would say it's safe to say no one's done more than on the right side of the spectrum in Ontario politics, but Linda and I in trying to bring um, blue voices and grassroots voices and Democrat democracy to uh, party politics in Ontario than Belinda and I, we got, I got sued in 2017 by the PC party. Never happened in history. I won um, in the 2020 leadership race. My wife was an MPP. I was in third place, hot on the trails of Aaron O'Toole. Poor Derek got convinced by some CPC operatives to run in that race. He wasn't ready. He got decimated in that interview with Evan Solomon. It was so sad to see him finish last. He spent more time attacking Leslie Lewis in that race than Aaron O'Toole. And now we've got this terrible leader, Aaron O'Toole, federally uh, in the leadership. And Derek got duped there. I was in third. I was ready to beat Aaron O'Toole. They kicked us out. Uh, they rigged a, a presidency convention against me a few years ago. And no one likes to talk about that. 
because the boys in the back don't want to talk. And then they kick my wife and I out. And so at this point, Richard, if you know our history and you don't trust us, I'm not really sure what more we can do. But in terms of selecting candidates, Richard, we're not going to do it like the way the Ontario PC party, they just put a guy, a hotshot lawyer in Durham, friend of Christine Elliott's just parachuted him in, announced he was the candidate, no nomination. If you want to apply to run in the new blue party, you agree with our principles and mission statement. It's newblueontario.com. We've got lots of people have already applied. We're going to have two deadlines. The first deadline's coming up soon, and we're going to vet people and interview them, consult with our riding associations and our members. And where we have more than one candidate, we'll have to do a nomination. Um, and it's going to be a grassroots effort. It's not going to be a guy at the top saying, here's the candidate here, here's the candidate there. That's how the Ontario PC party operates now. And that's how these pretend parties operate. The Ontario party, for example, you mentioned was came up three uh, years ago by a bunch of guys. And when Belinda got removed from the PC caucus last year, Richard, they called us up and they wanted to supposedly give us the party, but the guy in charge of the party wanted me to give him a job in Belinda's office, taxpayer funded job to give him the party. And we said, yeah, you know what? I said, we could probably get the signatures in a couple of weeks. I don't need this shadiness behind the door deals, the old style of doing politics. We're trying to do it. We're trying to do it from a grassroots perspective and standing up for what we believe in. And when we say we're going to do something, Richard, we try our best to follow through and do it despite fighting off cancer in the last year, despite all the things that are thrown at us. When we say we're setting up a new blue party and we're going to deliver in June, we do that. Other guys say they're going to set up federal parties. Four weeks later, they abandon it. They ask you today the email from Derek Sloan. I desperately need your financial support to lead a genuine challenge to Doug Ford's PCs. He's so desperate. The poor guy is so desperate, but he's not committed to that party enough to say he's running in the next provincial election. But he wants you, Richard, to give him money for this party. It's so sad. Run is Ontario, uh, the Ontario party under Derek Sloan going to run a candidate against Belinda in Cambridge? Oh, uh, I think you can, you know, he's going to get establishment figures to uh, support his party. They're going to just keep rolling out the endorsements and the establishment on the PC side is really worried, Richard, like Belinda's in the lead in Cambridge. And uh, we're already uh, very, very strong in Southwestern Ontario. One pollster put us on, we were way ahead, way ahead of where the PPC was six months into their uh, formation in, in 20- Ontario. And that was in Ontario. And that was in an election year. And at that time, when that poll was done, I was just getting back on my uh, feet and full steam ahead. So they're really worried. So they're going to throw everything at it. So, uh, yeah, I already got reports that Randy's guys are huddling and trying to find a candidate to run against Belinda, trying to recruit a hotshot candidate. And, uh, you know, on the phone, Derek took a, kind of like a passive aggressive swipe saying, Oh, don't worry. I'm not going to run a candidate against you or Belinda in your writings. Like as if I'm worried, like the poor guy finished dead last in the leadership, he finished fifth and there were four candidates on the race, Richard. I wasn't even on the ballot and he was dead last. I'm not really worried about you, Derek, but these are the kind of things that they're doing because the operatives in the back don't want Belinda to be reelected. Don't want us to pick up any more seats and don't want us to replace the Ontario PC party as the alternative to the liberals in Ontario and bring blue values, grassroots values and fight corruption in the political system, fight off these lobbyists. They don't want us to succeed. And if you were the Ontario PC party, Richard, would you not get your operatives to do that? 
to do exactly what's going on, set up two paper parties last minute, distract people, get Richard Siratas, Jim Carhalios on the radio. What about these other two guys? They don't have a party. They don't have members. They don't have donors. They don't have riding associations. They don't have a constitution. They got nothing. But it creates a little confusion. And we could be spending 15 minutes here, me just telling you more about the new blue party, but we got to address this because they're throwing curveballs and they're throwing everything they got at us, Richard. All right, Jim. Always appreciate your time. And um, we will be talking again, no doubt. Of course, the best is yet to come. NewBlueOntario.com. Thank you, my friend. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, on Friday, the uh, the Capitalist Manifesto, which is a great series being run uh, in the National Post, Financial Post, they featured a, a column by Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, titled Why Free Speech Must Be Protected at All Costs. I strongly urge you to read it, but we'll, uh, we'll also uh, get Joanna Barron on here to discuss this uh, wonderful piece, this wonderful series, The Capitalist Manifesto, uh, in uh, commemoration of the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the evil empire, the Soviet Union, and uh, really a celebration of capitalism and how it has created more prosperity and progress for more people than any system in human history, while communism and socialism have brought only misery and death. That conversation in uh, three minutes. Stay with us. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. I keep saying this, but it's it's so true. The, the, this is a, such a, uh, a powerful and important series being run by the uh, National Post, Financial Post, called The Capitalist Manifesto. Uh, I'm not sure how many weeks it's been running, and I just sort of caught on to it maybe uh, three, four weeks ago. And we've had um, some of the the um, the authors on. Matthew Lau was with us uh, last week. And um, this week, or last uh, Friday, rather, the uh, the article is titled Why Free Speech Must Be Protected All at All Costs. And Joanna Barron is uh, the writer. She's the executive. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, Joanna, welcome. Great to be here with you. Likewise. So uh, some people might say, well, okay, the Capitalist Manifesto, what does free speech have to do with capitalism? What do you say? Well, I think that free markets uh, include economics and they also include expression. And just as we believe in 
uh, well, as capitalists, as free thinking liberal people, we believe in the invisible hand of the market and the logic that millions of tiny choices add up to an invisible order. So is the same with discourse and speech and moral choice and views Um, and the alternative to having a thousand invisible choices and allowing consensus to develop as it were organically is to have a single person who's imposing their view on the collective just as they do in economics Um, so i talk about in the article about how the first thing that lenin did after the october revolution was shut down the press. He said, a bourgeois press is the biggest threat. Um, And that's because if you're trying to have, you know, a moral monopoly on questions of good and bad and how human beings should organize themselves, that's an incredibly dangerous thing to have people debating amongst themselves, isn't it? Right. As you you point out, and you quote Lenin, uh, ideas are much more fatal than guns. Yeah. And we fundamentally disagree with that as liberal people. Right. We think guns are guns and ideas are are ideas and sticks and stones can break your bones. Um, But in some sense, of course, words can hurt you morally, but we have to draw a hard line. And I think that's where in our present society, things are getting very wooly, um, that words are seen as violence, which is the Leninist position. Right. Well, I um, I know we. The, the idea, I guess, for the, the series, The Capitalist Manifesto, is in part to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the fall of the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan called it, the Soviet Union, and to, and to, um, to, to extol the virtues of capitalism, which we do a horrible job of doing in the West, especially with young people. If you look at the polls and how they're embracing uh, you know, Venezuelan style socialism is, is, is quite alarming. But I think the other point that needs to be made is the fact that this needs to be stated at all. Um, is is rather telling, particularly when we're talking about, you know, ex- talking the the importance of, of free speech. So obviously uh, it, it has to be stated because it's under threat in this country. To what extent? I mean, are we about to lose it here? Well, so I also talk about obviously I talk about, you know, the the October Revolution and those things. But I also talk about something that happened in 2021 in Canada in my article, which was the decision, which I'm sure you've spoken about, uh, Richard, because it's such an important case of Mike Ward, the comedian in Quebec who made a very uh, hurtful, distasteful joke, but a joke nonetheless about a disabled child. Um, And it went all the way to the Supreme Court because he was fined over $40,000 by the state not in a private lawsuit. And this is going to be important because I think if the family wanted to sue him privately, that would be a different thing by the state. The state said you crossed the line with your comedy. Um, But the point is, it went to the Supreme Court and only by one vote, by a 5-4 margin, was that fine overturned. And the four dissenting judges said basically words are violence Um, And you went too far in your comedy. And also you, Mike Ward, are the powerful um, comedian and this child is the weak one. And so irrespective of what your free expression rights are, you need to prove that we should allow you to make this joke because you're the more powerful one. This all comes down to a degree of moral relativism that just distills down to who's more powerful. If they're more powerful, they're wrong. I know we're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back. Uh, yes, I want to delve into the Ward versus Quebec case a little bit more. This is it's uh, very, very important. 
Although, you know, no getting around the fact that uh, uh, the comedian, Mike Ward, who is, uh, you know, decidedly uh, dark, as you uh, point out, it's his dark comedy and his his comments were were odious. They were they were hurtful. No question about it. Uh, Jeremy Gabriel as a, a childhood uh, singer, child singer, and and claimed that these jokes led to schoolyard bullying against him and uh, drove him to the brink of suicide. So certainly we don't take his, um, you know, his feelings lightly or, uh, you know, potential damage that was done. However, uh, it is an important, it's a landmark case, and we'll uh, continue to discuss why free speech must be protected at all costs. Joanna Barron stays with us, the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. More with our conversation or more of our conversation right after these. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Joanna Barron stays with us, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. We're talking about her article, which is part of a, an ongoing series in the National Post Financial Post called The Capitalist Manifesto. Her article titled Why Free Speech Must Be Protected at All Costs. And we were discussing the the case of uh, comedian Mike Mike Ward, who made admittedly very tasteful, distasteful rather, and and hurtful uh, jokes uh, directed at a um, a young uh, disabled singer by the name of Jeremy Gabriel. It went to the Supreme Court. The state was uh, was basically fining Mike Ward for uh, forty thousand dollars, and um, the the case here, as you write, uh, it it weighed Mike Ward's. Uh, right to freedom of expression against something that's in the Quebec charter called human dignity. Uh, what exactly is the right to human dignity? What does that entail? What does that mean? Yeah, I, I don't think anybody has been able to define that except by saying that it's something inherent to every human being. Um, and it's vague enough um, that, again, I, I think that we need to be clear that there are remedies available for Jeremy Gabriel and his family if they were hurt and if indeed these comments did lead to him having suicidal thoughts. But they are private remedies, right? If the Gabriels had sued Mike Ward in a sort of private defamation suit, that would be completely different. And I'm sure they had reasons or legal advice why they didn't do that. But that's a matter between two private individuals. Here you have the state stepping in and saying, you haven't just done something that caused injury to another citizen. You've done something that we want to morally signal is wrong um, to the public, to society, right? That's the difference with public law. And I just think we have to look at where that leads because it doesn't take the most cynical person to realize that if the state starts getting involved in what is morally harmful speech? What jokes go too far, right? We saw a similar flap recently in the U.S. over Dave Chappelle and his jokes about trans people. Um, although in that case, there wasn't any question of involving the government. But the, the state has a self-interest in policing policing speech so that it, of course, does not criticize them. And anybody who thinks that in Canada that could never happen just needs to study history, <laughs> study the, you know, study... Soviet Union and how quickly it flipped from a liberal pluralistic society to, you know, the horrors of Stalinism. The, the five to four uh, decision and, and Ward won, um, but it was it was close, as you point out, five to four. So we could be just, you know, one 
or two Supreme Court justice appointments away from a position where we find in Canada that people have a right not to be offended. I mean, that's kind of chilling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's why I think that it's important to talk about, to go back to first principles and say, no, no, no. Free speech is important because as human beings, we're going to have disagreements. What I think is the good life is going to conflict with what you think is the good life. Um, And we can either talk about it and hash it out and agree to disagree or learn from each other. Or if we really fundamentally disagree and we can't hash it out, eventually one of us will kill the other. Right. Where, where things really matter. And that that is the history of human beings. Um, and we learned this thing called conversation that we could use to mediate disagreements rather than violence. And we should not forget that bedrock principle. Absolutely. Um, you were talking about uh, Lenin and the Bolshevik Revolution and how he um, almost immediately after the October Revolution started suppressing and shutting down um liberal newspapers, dozens of them. And um, Hitler did the same thing, of course, although he didn't, he he sort of used another tactic as well. And that was, he started his own newspapers, but then he bought up other newspapers. And this idea of buying up in uh, newspapers or, or buying influence in newspapers is eerily familiar. I mean, it's, it's a short step from what Hitler was doing and what Trudeau is doing by paying off newspapers, subsidizing newspapers, or am I, am I, is that too much of a stretch? Oh, I don't know. I tend to be resist the reductio ad Hitler as much as possible. I will say though, that, um, that we have seen, you know, the Trudeau government make some pretty, uh, I would say over the top intrusions into free discourse. So for example, this was another case, the Canadian constitution Uh, foundation took, which was a very draconian law the Trudeau government brought in in 2019, right before the 2019 federal election um, that made it a crime punishable by jail time or $50,000 to um, to utter a false statement about a political party or candidate. Um, And even if the false statement was innocent, so if you innocently retweeted something that, for example, said Justin Trudeau is a crook, of course, remember that this was this was right when the SNC Lavalin scandal was going on. And it was specifically a crime to say that a candidate had committed an offense. Um, and that was sort of the most sensitive issue. Um, and so clearly the liberal government had a vested interest in policing this type of speech. And it's not too far to see to it doesn't take that many maneuvers to go from I will not talk about Justin Trudeau and a possible RCMP investigation against him to I pledge allegiance to Chairman Mao, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, we'll, we'll take one final time out, Joanna, and uh, discuss a little bit further if you're good for that. Of course. Joanna Barron, Executive Director, Canadian Constitution Foundation, writing in the Capitalist Manifesto series from for the National Post and uh, Financial Post, why free speech must be prote- protected at all costs. Back with more in a moment. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. And we're back with Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And we're talking about her uh, piece in the Capitalist Manifesto that ran uh, Beach Must Be Protected at All Costs. Um, I know it's not freedom of speech, but um, the... um, 
government, the federal government just passed a, uh, a new law regarding protesting in front of uh, hospitals. And, and uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it does sort of move into that area of freedom of expression, the freedom to protest. Any thoughts on that piece of legislation? Yeah, well, first, I'll just say that both freedom of expression and freedom of protest are kind of the bedrock of just democracy. Right. If we can't express our views and if we aren't free to express our opinions freely without fear of being censured or jailed, it's hard to see how individual citizens can govern ourselves and and vote in terms of the law governing protesting at hospitals. Look, uh, my opinion is that, yes, these people may be obnoxious and it certainly is distasteful to see them uh, if they actually block healthcare workers from getting to their job, but they're not harming anyone and they do have a right to protest. So part of the rough and tumble of living in a free society, again, is sometimes we have to see things that we may disagree with. So I basically think They have a right to protest. And as long as they aren't actively preventing people from getting care or getting people to work, um, that's just, you know, one one of the wages of liberty. That piece of legislation, I think there may have been 24 uh, senators who opposed, but obviously they weren't successful. So that that piece of legislation has passed. and the polling that I've seen is, is rather discouraging. I don't know if we can argue how accurate they are, but Canadians seem to go along with these sorts of measures. Um, this idea that we shouldn't offend people with with speech and maybe there even ought to be laws against that. And if 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 the citizens aren't going to fight for freedom of speech. Uh, where are we at this point? I mean. Is it have we lost it? You know, I think that we could use an injection. We, we don't have as much of a robust culture of liberty in this country as perhaps we once did or you see in other countries. Um, I think that we've become spoiled because um, you're right. And we saw the same thing with the various online speech, online harms bill putting in all of these all of these possible fines for spreading hate speech online with such a vague definition. And I actually think it comes from a good place. Canadians say, well, I I don't want people to be hurt. I don't want you know, I don't want a comedian to be able to say, you know, offensive things about a disabled child. All of that, like their heart is in the right place. And I'm very sympathetic. But it's taking that step back and saying, wait, if if the government gets to decide when a comedian goes too far and the government gets to decide these people are allowed to protest because I agree with them, but these people aren't, where does that actually lead? And it leads to a place where you have a self-serving bureaucracy that we have outsourced our morality to, and then it can just get very ugly. So I think people need to just like Play, play things out a little bit more and look at things from a bit more of it. And I think that's why it's so wonderful that the National Post is running this celebration of the fall of the Soviet Union, because we forget, you know, just like the scale of human atrocities that happened in a civilized, literate, was once pluralistic society, if, you know, not too long ago. Um, and that is the road to serfdom, Right. It's um, I find it curious that we, you know, we shun public displays of, uh, you know, Nazi paraphernalia as well. We should. Uh, And yet, you know, people show up at protests proudly waving a hammer and sickle or they walk around with their Che Guevara T-shirts. 
uh, and, and yet there's no sort of um, equal level of uh, social opprobrium. What are your thoughts? I think it's uh, what I mentioned a moment ago, that there's this perception that, you know, communist revolutions have fought in favor of the quote unquote little guy. And there's been such a, you know, infusion of moral relativism that any movement that purports to be on behalf of the proletariat, as opposed to, you know, Nazis, which were overtly fascist. And so those seen as completely different things. Um, and so many blind eyes are turned to what those regimes actually did and how Lenin and Stalin have more blood on their hands than even Hitler did. And I'm, I don't say that to diminish what Hitler did at all. I'm the descendant of Holocaust survivors. I'm very alive to that. Um, but if you look at the scope of just of bloodshed in communist regimes um, that were just, you know, collateral damage to the so-called proletariat state, it's absolutely outrageous that it's it's a vogue to wear a hammer and sickle. I, I agree with you. I'm perplexed. And yet, if I had an explanation, it would be because they are, quote unquote, for the working person. In the United States, there was this uh, 1619 project. And I guess the the, the reflexive response to that was, uh, well, we need a 1776 project uh, in terms of, you know, uh, instructing our school children and, and, and how to embrace their country and its values and, and so forth. Do we at this point, I mean, it would seem that we need um, and I'm not talking about the cultural revolution <laughs> in uh, communist China, but we need that kind of a, a shakeup in our in our culture if we're ever going to to maintain uh, you know, our, our, our values of, of freedom of speech. Do we need kind of a I don't know, an, an 1867 project in this country? I think so. I think so. And we'd have to think about some way to make it as as appealing as the hammer and sickle to the so-called youth. I don't know. I do think that there are pockets of sort of contrarians. I personally uh, work with a lot of law students who are very interested in liberty and who are completely disillusioned with the utter lack of meaning um, and sort of clarity in their generation. Um, and part of our job is to just make their voices as loud as possible. Um, and also, it's very hopeful. I was really delighted when the National Post said, we're going to spend a month just celebrating the fall of the Soviet Union. I thought that was brilliant. Well, another great uh, idea, I think, would be uh, to have our uh, young people in school read the uh, the Capitalist Manifesto every week in the National Post and the Financial Post. It's just a, a terrific steer, uh, series, and uh, I commend you for your contribution to it. Well, thank you so much, Richard. Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Brandon. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. The Brian Crombie Hour is next. Be well, find joy, hold fast, be kind, but push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's 
all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.